Travis officially retired from his job as a bond trader at 25. Yes, you heard that right. 25. Travis is talented at getting professionals out of debt, writing about money, and telling people to quit their jobs. In all seriousness, he has a pretty legit reason why. Let's dig into that and more in this episode. Welcome to Fire Drill Podcast, where side hustles, savings, and creativity lead to financial independence. With your hosts, Gwen from Fiery Millennials and Jay from Millennial Boss. This podcast episode is sponsored by SE Coaching, LLC. Are you burned out and fed up with the law business? Wish there were a better way? There's hope for you to break through to a fulfilling career or solo practice. SE Coaching LLC's founder, Sarah Ellen Hutchison, helps other lawyers through frugal practice hacks and mindfulness techniques. Go to sarahellenhutchison.com to learn more. Hey, everybody. Today we have Travis from Student Loan Planner in the house. Welcome. Good to be here. And Gwen, of course. Hello. So, Travis, I became familiar with your site through Millennial Moolah, which is also another domain that you own. Why don't you take a few minutes to tell us about yourself? Yeah, sure. I was in the rat race pretty hard in my early 20s. I was doing some bond trading up in the Northeast. I was sitting bored one day looking at my computer and I found Mr. Money Mustache and discovered that this whole fire movement was a thing. So I was like, wow, well, you know, I could save a bunch of money and live really cheap and there's a purpose behind it. And that's really cool. I saved maybe 60, 70% of my income and at 25 published my... 100 book bestseller you, you can get for 99 cents on Amazon, 25 is the new 65. And I traveled around the world. Uh, I just really enjoyed going to like 30 different countries. Then met my now fiance. She was a physician, is a physician, and she had a lot of med school debt. My process of traveling the world didn't really fit with more of like a medical type career, at least right now, right? Because doctors, it takes them probably at least into their, I would say mid to late 30s to hit financial independence because of medical school loans. And so that became really interesting to me. How do I figure out what to do with these med school loans? And that's where Student Loan Planner came from, was just in this journey to try to help figure out what the best way to pay back student loans was. So now I have this business and I work full time again, which I never thought I would do. But I'm super lucky because if I had never learned about the fire movement, maybe there's a chance I'd still be sitting, you know, in a corporate type environment, not being as excited to get up every morning. So hold up here. You retired at 25 years old. <laughs> well, I got a lot of heat for it. Deservedly so. I retired with enough to what I should say is not work for like 10 years. So I didn't work. I didn't retire with enough to hang up the hat permanently. But my thought process was this. All these people online were talking about retiring and then doing something on the side, right? Like MMM talks about how he did house projects and he would make a little money doing random random things and how if you uh, had hobbies, some of those would be paid hobbies when you retire. So my thought process was, well, if I'm a really young person, my human capital is not fully depleted like a typical retiree would, would be. So I could easily jump back into the workforce if I had to and just explain it as, you know, youth, youthful mistake, right? So my thought was, okay, well, maybe I can just quit while I'm like 60% FI instead of 100% FI, and then I can do it sooner. <laughs> so uh, that was my philosophy was I was able to save up, you know, a significant sum and walk away from it all with the goal of just kind of seeing what happened. And now I'm probably making about what I was making 
before when I was in a corporate type environment and I get to do whatever I want to do. So that's kind of an awesome accident. I think more instructed, I think more people should jump, you know, if they're 50% FI, I don't think you should wait around personally, unless you just, unless you like what you're doing, you know, because most people I think like FI is to free them from something. And my point is like, if you're looking to be freed from something, then that means you should already do that. So I don't know. I mean, that's just kind of my take. So how'd you pitch that to your GF? Very poorly. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, she's um, Asian Canadian background. And so her parents didn't really like the idea of people who just don't work, right? Like that's kind of like kind of frowned, frowned upon. My dad just kept explaining it as a sabbatical. Like he just kept telling everybody like that would listen that I was on some sabbatical. Like it wasn't permanent. And I was like, no, dad is permanent. Like I'm not going to go back and work for, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to go sign up for like a Johnson and Johnson corporate intern program or something like this. I'm uh, this is done. <laughs> and and he had always, you know, and everybody would always be like, "Oh, kids are coming, man. You're you're screwed. You have no idea what's coming." And I was like, "Well, yeah, but I'm in the Ukraine right now and for 5 bucks, I get a really nice place to stay for like another 5 bucks. I have three meals that I can eat out and for like 2 bucks, I can have an all-day pass wherever I want to go and it's really like the internet's great. Like you can watch all these things at Netflix. You can't watch in the U S like it was awesome. So from my perspective, like I was traveling, maybe spending an annualized 18,000 a year. So, I mean, from my perspective, I was like, well, if I've, you know, I mean, I don't have to go back to work until this starts getting, you know, way worse from a spending perspective. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, um, obviously I'm back in the U S and I'm running a business now. And, and so, uh, she was more important than, the idea of just being FI and living wherever I wanted to. And that's like a sacrifice that I'm more than happy to make because I think that it's going to be really cool in the future to kind of do it all over again. So I'm kind of trying to go for, for two FIs, if that makes sense. <laughs> all I have to say is, aww. Aww. Yeah, that's so cute. I know. Well, I, I try. I mean, I probably uh, cause a lot of grief because, uh, you know, traveling around the world is not the best uh, for relationships. And so I realized that I needed to you know, shun my youthly ways and come, come back and live in the U.S. again. All right. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> so tell us about this epic trip. Where did you go? I went to Europe first. So I was on Facebook kind of being depressed and I saw this ad for Wow Air. I'll never forget it. And it, they were like $99 flights to Iceland. And I was like, gum, that's cheap. Like, I don't even know what's, I don't even know what it's in Iceland, but that's, I might as well just buy the ticket. And I did. And it became super real to me. You know, I went there and then I was like, okay, well now I can go anywhere in Europe because it's cheap to fly from Iceland to the rest of Europe. So I went to Scandinavia. I went down all of the Baltic countries. Then I went down into Poland, had like a $4 bus where it was like all leather, like latest entertainment. Then they had waitresses like bring us like refreshments on the bus. And I'm like, what is this? Like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and then I went down to Ukraine and the, the Balkans it's just had a ton of really fun times there being in Montenegro on the beach, eating fresh fruit from random trees in the streets. Then I came back up and went to Western Europe, which was cool, but I, I liked Eastern Europe a lot more and finished the trip in Great Britain and then flew back to the U S hung out there for a little bit with the GF and then went with my buddy down to Mexico. And so then we went on a random bus trip through Mexico, through Central America Met a couple fun Irish guys we hung out with on the way. Went on really 
crazy night excursions where you would have glow in the dark lagoons where you have sticks and you you know can see bioluminescence in the in the lagoons and uh got held up by a group of taxi people protesting like low wages and they like were demanding bribes to pass but they were kind of nice so that was weird i mean it was just so interesting just all these weird all these random things right did they say please They're like give us ten dollars well yeah yeah kind of like well some of them were okay some of them were nice and some of them weren't so it was it was some like random state like chiapas in mexico it's kind of known for like labor unrest and so we booked this all-day trip and with this like tour excursion company and we always brought all of our stuff with us like just in case and was really lucky we did that that day because they held us up and like the first like roadblock we just paid the bribe and they let us go by and then the second one they told the drivers that they were going to hold everybody for two hours to make a point and that if anybody wanted to go faster, you could cross through the blockade and pay a tax, uh, one of their tax, taxi people uh, an inflated price to get to the next checkpoint at which you could hire a new taxi guy to get to the next checkpoint. So I, I spoke like enough Spanish to get by and there was these Koreans with us that spoke zero and they were so scared. And so me and my buddy and these three Korea, uh, like Koreans stepped into this taxi and made our way like through a bunch of blockades to get to the next city. And it was just a cool story, right? Like you're never going to have something like that in the U S and it wasn't dangerous or anything. They were just, you know, trying to raise stink to get better wages. You know, they probably don't make very much. So, um, but it was, it was, it was really neat. Like I think that in terms of tourism, like you're building up somebody else's economy with your dollars, you're seeing something really affordably going where people don't go. It's really quite amazing. I'd really recommend anybody who's kind of like wishing that they were FI right now that isn't, maybe just quit your job for a year. You know, you'll get another job. You you really will. Ruh-roh. Unless, yeah, uh-oh, I said it. I mean, like, seriously, like, do you, are you that underconfident in yourself that you think that the job that you have is so good that you couldn't get another one kind of like it? I mean, I think so. And it worked out for me. If I hadn't had this business fall into my lap, I probably would have had to go back and work for some corporate place which would have kind of stunk, but, you know, that's kind of where I was already and I wasn't happy, you know? Yeah. I don't know. So tell us, uh, I know you share numbers on your blog, and I'm curious, the Around the World trip, did that fit into your $16,000 yearly budget or whatever you had allocated yourself? Totally. So I had a, a budget in my head daily that I was allowed to spend that was 50 bucks because that, round, you know, around, roughly like, you know, sixteen to 18000 a year. So my thought was, okay, if I can spend fifty less than fifty bucks a day, then I'm good. So if you have enough income where you qualify for ACA subsidies, like healthcare is pretty much covered, you know. So you don't have to worry about that. And plus you're abroad, so healthcare is super cheap anyway. So for fifty bucks, I would break it down like, okay, I have twenty bucks that's going to the hostel and I want to go see some museums and other attractions, that's fifteen bucks, and the remaining 15 bucks is for food and everything else. And if I was in a place like Scandinavia, obviously that's impossible. So I would basically borrow from the Eastern European days to cover Scandinavia. And if I went over the budget, I would hang out a little bit longer than I'd anticipated in a cheaper place to kind of balance it all out. So in Oslo and Stockholm, my daily budget was probably closer to 100. In Ukraine, my daily budget was probably closer to 20. I was able to sort of travel different places and kind of geographic arbitrage it so that the rough average was 50 bucks a day. So I would say that living abroad is way cheaper than living in America. Dang. 
Okay, so we are going to release this probably right after we talk to Bobby from Millennial Money Man, and we're going to maybe have a lot of people quitting their jobs this week. Uh oh. <laughs> Sorry oh, to no. everyone's bosses everywhere. Our deepest apologies. And the stock market will crash, and it'll be my fault. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then you'll get it'll some be hate millennials' email. fault. Yeah, those darn millennials. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally millennials. Okay, awesome. So let's dig in a little more to your initial plan before you became an entrepreneur. So I think you said you had saved up two hundred fifty thousand or something in two years or three years. Can you tell us a little bit more about the accumulation phase? Yeah, I guess it really starts before college because I think that a lot of people don't realize like that's the first huge decision on your net worth is where do you go to college? And for me, my family wasn't very well off, couldn't really afford a private school, so I was going to have to probably take out a bunch of loans if I was going to go to one of those places. I luckily got into an in-state school that gave me a great scholarship, and I also worked as a teaching assistant for an undergrad course while I was in college and so made some extra money that way. I lived in like campus ministry housing for the Methodist campus organization. So I basically did a lot of weird stuff to minimize expenses in college. Plus, I had all these scholarships. So I actually came out with a, a positive net worth after college, which is very unusual. Usually, it's the opposite, nice. right? Yeah. So after that, then just moving up to the Northeast, living with a whole bunch of roommates, like saving the 60 to 70%, the stock market had incredible returns during that period. So if you were invested in stocks, there was one year that I saved 100% of my pre-tax income. And that's not because I lived on zero. It's because the stock market returned like 33%. I think this was like in 2013 or 2014 or something like that. But that accumulation phase was helped by an enormous bull market from you know QE and all those things. Then I you know had about, yeah, around what kind of what you mentioned. I, I lost a little bit because I gave up a lot of vested retirement funds. And yeah, I mean, so that's so the accumulation phase took me about three years post college, which sounds nuts. But now I'm, I guess, back in in an accumulation phase uh, of sorts. And, you know, just trying to enjoy life. I mean, you only need a certain amount. And if I'm able to bring in more than I'm spending at this point, that's kind of like already way better than my plan, right? Because I was thinking, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I was just gonna kind of spend it all down over 10 years, maybe have to go do something. So if I'm growing my net worth right now, then that's all I can really ask for. So let's talk a little bit about what you mentioned, how you you gave up some of vested things that you had. And I think a lot of people can relate, whether you have the golden handcuffs of stock that has invested yet, or your work's pension that takes five years, or your employer match, or whatever. How did you grapple with giving that up? And do you sometimes see maybe some of your your friends who continue to work in the industry who are making a lot of money? Do you feel like FOMO about that? Yeah, I mean, sometimes. But then I I think, what if I told you that I was going to give you a million dollars, but it had a 30-year vesting schedule where you had to work at a certain company for 30 years, and it was a cliff where you got zero if you didn't work there? You know, you can talk like discounting all that back to the present and trying to think of it that way. But if you divide the million bucks and, you know, divide it by 30 or whatever, uh, so it's, you know, roughly like 30 grand a year, that's significant money. But I bet very few millennials would want to take that to commit 30 years for 30,000 a year, you know, losing out on that vesting. Like, I, I th- even though that's a lot of money, I think a lot of people would not do that. And if you think about that long term, why aren't you just as sensitive about that short term? 
right? So if I have these vested stock options and it's worth a bunch of money, there's opportunity cost, not just financially, but with your life. If you're spending eight hours or 10 hours a day not being happy at work, that's time that you never get back. Sure, if you're making, you know, big law associate money or surgeon money or something like that, yeah, you can afford to do that for a few years and make bank and put away some money and quit. Like that's, that's, you can do that. But if you're making 50 to 100,000, which is just typical corporate America type money, then you should be able to do something else and make close to that, that that would make you more happy along the way. I don't know. I mean, I think that the vested options, it bothered me a little bit, but then I thought, oh, wow, I can be traveling when all of my friends are still sitting around here taking BS for managers and doing pointless projects and working with way outdated IT systems and twiddling their thumbs and counting down the hours till it's 5 p.m. You know what I mean? And praying that the multiple for the bonus this year is 1.3 instead of 1.2. Oh my gosh, that's an extra 500 bucks. Like, and at the end of the day, it's just kind of, I think it's pointless to live life like that. I hate how much yeah. you just described my entire life right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, and, and the funny thing is like in bond trading, I think it's a great career, right? It just wasn't for me. I think for certain people, it's a wonderful career. You know, the people that do it well, they make million dollars a year at a really stable company. Like that's a wonderful existence if that makes you happy. But I realized it kind of hit me really hard one day because I, when I came in the company, I was like every idiot millennial, right? Uh, and I was a total idiot millennial. I was like, I'm going to be the CEO. I'm going to work so hard. They're going to notice me. They're going to want to move me up. I'm going to get all these great mentors. You know, by the time I'm 30, I'm going to be like uh, one of the top junior people, at the firm. And then I realized one morning that if somebody offered me the CEO job like that day, I wouldn't want it. That kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And I'm like, if I don't want that job and I don't want the job below him and the job below him and the job below him, then what am I doing here? Yeah. Yeah. So I would extrapolate that. Like if you're a lawyer and you don't want to be a partner, then what the heck are you doing at big law? You know, if you're a surgeon and you don't want to be the chairperson of the department or a top researcher, a top surgeon, whatever the pinnacle of success is in that career, then like, why are you in that career? I, I don't know. That, that's just kind of what I think. Part of me wonders, and I don't think this is true. I think this is an excuse that I tell myself, but the more money that you make, the harder it is to walk away from it. Like if I was making what I was making four years ago or something like that, this would be an easier decision. But when you start getting into the the bigger benefits and the pretty ponies of all the stock and things like that, it's hard to to walk away. Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend at one of the big three consulting firms. He was trying to make a decision as to does he stay on for a few more years full time, make four or five hundred thousand a year, or does he basically work part time and not work as hard and take a path that definitely leads to lower advancement and less potential for making partner and do some like side projects that he really is passionate about? I asked him, like, what do you think success looks like? I said, if I could guarantee you that the next 20 years of your life, you're going to be ascending in a very linear role towards becoming a partner, would that be an exciting life? Like, would you work so hard for that if you were guaranteed that? And I said, what if I told you that the opposite was that you'd be managing a $100 million you know, real estate fund and you'd be man- making all the decisions and taking risk and making interesting bets and potentially failing. Is that interesting? And when I kind of put it that way, 
it was no longer really about the money that he was forgoing. Like the money almost became boring because it was so predictable, right? So from a risk-taking perspective, if you want to live life in an exciting fashion, I would say the the guaranteed money is the most boring money, right? Because it's yeah, sure, it's stick to the ribs, but you know exactly if you do X, Y, and Z in a big company what you're gonna be making. And that's it. I mean, you could make more if you're sure if you're an executive, maybe you make a lot more, but you also lose out on all the cool stuff that you could have created if you quit and did your own thing. So, okay. So I, I'm with you there. Another thing I want to point out though, I think that you can be too young to quit your job too. And let me describe my own experience here. When I first graduated college, I was trying to, I made a website about student travel because I was obsessed with it and everyone was making websites. So I figured, you know, I'll write about something that I really enjoy. Somehow I got asked to be part of a student travel startup through that. We were going through the process of launching the startup. And this was something I was doing on nights and weekends or whenever I had free time in addition to my day job. And we didn't have any experience. Like here we were just these young, fresh out of college people. And we were working with developers from other country and trying to figure out how to spend the like 15K in capital that we had to spend. And I just didn't have the experience. Whereas now, after being in the industry for you know, six or so years or however long I've been in here, I would, I would be able to just beast that. I know it. So part, and, and over the years, I've had great mentors. I've had some managers that have been just phenomenal and have helped me grow. So part of it is like, you need to learn before you jump to, in, in my opinion, but maybe we can debate that. Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with getting experience. So like, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I know that if I had to do what I'm doing with my business now when I was 22, I would have failed miserably because I didn't have any you know context to put it in. So I would say that being in corporate America is a stabilizing introduction to what life is like for the majority of people, I think is a wonderful thing. And I think that you need to tough it out to some degree because in my first year there, I was already unhappy. But if I left after the first year, I would not have gotten any skills, any cool talking points, any amazing experiences that now help me have credibility in what I do now. So I would say that, yeah, well, I think that, you know, it'd be hypocritical for me to not tell somebody who didn't like their job to take a chance because that's what I did. I, I think there's also merit to at least giving whatever you're doing a try for a little time just to make sure that, yeah, that is the right decision. What do you think, Gwen? I think that that is totally true. I mean, I had a miserable work experience and I learned a lot from it, but I learned a lot about what I don't like and how to handle certain situations and everything. And I'm actually kind of grateful like I went through all that because it taught me a lot about myself and how to handle people. And I am a better person because I went through that. And I can't say that I would be the same if I had just given up and quit and gone and done my own thing where I was happy and I wasn't having to deal with people. And yeah, I think that getting experience for a couple of years isn't a bad idea at all. So let's say that you are at the point of somebody who you've had your experience and you're ready to make the leap. Travis, take us through some of the steps that you did to make a successful business. So the first thing that I had was urgency. So my future in-laws told me that, you know, a man who sits at home and doesn't work is uh, an eater of soft white rice. And that's uh, this disgraceful. <laughs> and, you know, I needed to seriously think about getting something to occupy my time to be, you know, an honorable person. 
Uh, so hopefully they're not listening to the podcast. If so, hey, how you guys doing? <laughs> but um, <laughs> so I had urgency. I had to do something, and the alternative was going back to corporate America, and uh, that got me really motivated. Which sounds kind of funny to say, like the idea of returning to having a manager, having to make project charters, and do all the corporate stuff that I think makes corporations effective, but also not, you know, super interesting. Uh, do TPS reports. Yeah, like whatever whatever the little thing is, exactly. You know, it just wasn't I, I got super motivated. So that was the first thing. Second thing was I had a, I found a problem, a huge problem, where people were not getting good student loan advice. Uh financial advisors had no clue what to do. People had hundreds of thousands of dollars and they were making all these terrible financial mistakes. People were having huge stress over it and freaking out and there was mental health issues surrounding it and all these different fields. There's, you know, one and a half trillion dollars of student loans. So I found this huge problem. The third part was I felt I could actually contribute and help solve it because of my Excel background, bond skills. I had analytics that nobody really could bring, I think, to the table compared to your traditional type of money expert that would want to talk about something like that. And so those three things. And the fourth thing was luck. So I published my uh, my spreadsheet that I'd built, the initial version on the web Business Insider accepted it, and then it took off and got like 300,000 views. And I had all these people reaching out, asking me for consults, even though I was like, oh, I do this thing part-time. And so all these people wanted consults on their student loans to make a plan, and that gave me capital that I invested into Facebook ads and developing the website a little bit better, and that caused even more consults to happen and gave me more credibility, and people were interested in having me on podcasts, and now I've, I've advised about 123 million for about 450 clients in the past 10 months. So it's kind of crazy that that happened without intentionally trying to do it. And the only way it happened was because I was not forced to, for financial reasons, work in a job I wasn't happy with. That's incredible. And I think people want this information because I know when I graduated college with student loan debt, I had to fill out this exit interview with my college or who I don't even know who I filled it out with, to be honest, because I just wanted to get to senior week in Myrtle Beach. And I it was keeping me from doing that. So I just clicked all the buttons. Yes. Try to answer the questions. And then I ran out to do that. And I had no idea what I signed myself up for. And then six months later, the payments were due. And I hadn't figured it out at the time, but I, I figured out somehow how to set up online payments and go through that. So I think that what you're doing is really great. So give us an examples of your kind of like typical client that you do, you help and what type of stuff you do for them. Sure. I mean, my typical client is very different from probably a typical person with student loans. The typical millennial has got 35,000 in student loans. My typical client has 280,000. My typical client is a professional school graduate, a dentist, a veterinarian, a physician, lawyer, uh, chiropractor, different type of professional school programs. They come out, they have, you know, 200, 300,000. I've seen a million three times that I've advised people with a million dollars in student debt. So nothing like surprises me anymore. It's, it's crazy. You have all this debt. Please tell me they had the income coming in to help offset that monumental well, amount of debt. I mean, yeah, they had they had over 200,000 in income, but when you have that amount of income but that amount of debt, that still doesn't help. You know, I mean, that's, you can't, you could live on 40,000, but then you have, you know, half of that going to taxes. And so you've got, you know, 60 something thousand. So you could pay it back over like 20 years and have nothing to live on. But, you know, I mean, oh the, my gosh. so yeah. So if you have that much debt, there's a lot of strategies that you have to use that fly in the face of conventional Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman type pay off your debt, don't spend money type wisdom. 
So that's basically what I do. So optimizing the government income-driven plans, finding ways to save money with public service loan forgiveness, finding the best refinancing deals, playing banks off against each other to try to find the best rates. So this, that's just an example of what I do. So say somebody has 350000 I'm going to find out what's most important to them, what kind of retirement goals they have, what, you know, what other kind of debts or spending problems that might exist, and then basically give them a plan on how they can most efficiently handle their debt according to their values. And I just charge a flat fee for the consult service, and then the other side of the coin is refinancing. If people decide on their own that they want to refinance on my website, then I get a little bit of affiliate revenue from that. So that's the two um, parts of the business, and it's luckily enough that I don't have to go work in corporate America, which is really exciting. <laughs> that's amazing. Do you find it ironic that you advise people on how to deal with their student loan debt when you never had student loans to begin with? It's definitely ironic. The one thing I would say is that it definitely is affecting me because of my personal life with my fiance who has, you know, six figures of medical school debt that we've been aggressively paying on. So right. it doesn't it doesn't affect me, but it has affected me. Right. So to the some extent there's a little bit of credibility there because people know that I'm going through it. And a lot of times it's spouses reaching out like on behalf of somebody that has student debt. So that's kind of fun because I can relate to that. But yeah, it's very ironic too that that I'm advising all these people that you go to professional school because you want to you want stick to the ribs, stable, high income for life, where you're going to be able to easily retire with no worries one day. And what I'm finding is that going to professional school, setting people back so far because of their net worth, and the income driven programs require you to work for 20 to 25 years. Basically, if you go to professional school at a very expensive place then there's a very good likelihood that you will not be able to afford to early retire until at least 50. So that's really fascinating because if you're willing to be frugal, not take on student loans, graduate, do the path that I think that we've done, then you can retire in your 30s like Mr. Money Mustache or Go Hurry Cracker or some of these people. But if you go to the professional school route where you have to have the grades and you have to have the you know crazy work ethic you know that I don't have to go to med school, then actually you're kind of dooming yourself to doing that career and nothing else until you're 50 years old. You know, I mean, there's some exceptions like physician on fire, but hmm. it's kind of crazy. Do you ever slip in a little like, hey, have you heard about Mr. Money Mustache or early retirement? Or do you try to keep it like main, more mainstream tailored to the mainstream professional advice? It depends. I'll ask them what's important to them. I'll try to find out what's the thing that really motivates them. Some people, they want to be free in which case it's really helpful to lear- learn about those kind of people. In some cases, it doesn't bother them. Like they went to medical school because they want to be a doctor, and that's their calling, and they can't imagine retiring early from that. So in that case, you know, maybe I'll bring up some you know, white-coat investor, physician-on-fire type people that might have some useful stuff about taxes or something along those lines, but it's about the client. You always want to focus on them and, and make them feel like you're their focus and you're not trying to indoctrinate them with your own beliefs, right? So I try to figure out what people want, whether that's low cash flow payments going to debt or high to get out of debt, low interest costs, saving for retirement. And usually I come down on the side of saving for retirement because if you pay off all your debt but you still have nothing saved for retirement, then you're going to basically be working until forever. Yeah, and I think that that's something that I struggle with a bit because there's so much student loan debt and so much debt out there, and I, I've never been in debt ever, and so like I know the general principles, you know, the snowball or avalanche, you know, whatever. But people are like, oh, you know, can you help me? And I'm like, you know, I can, I, I can steer you in the right direction, 
But then they find out, you know, I've never had student loan debt. And they're like, well, how do you know? You don't have any credibility at all when it comes to debt, which is something that I've come to accept. But Well, I think you just have to be <clears throat> humble about it, right? And just say, yeah. hey, I don't know what you're going through, but I know how hard it is to save a certain percent of your income every month, which is what you're going to need to get out of debt. And I know that it's tough to live like less than you can afford. I just had a great conversation with someone recently who talked about how she really, really wishes she could go back in time and not sign her lease because she realizes now that that was a huge mistake. So it's really rewarding to have those kind of discussions because now you know, she's going to be planning on taking on roommates and living at a fraction of the cost that she was before. And, you know, I think you just have to just come at it from whenever you're, you know, you're blessed like we were from not having debt. Just acknowledge that, that you were blessed yep. and that you know some technical stuff that could help them get out of debt faster and they're always willing to to do that like i've never had anybody say like oh my gosh you've never paid back debt like i'm not taking your advice <laughs> yeah i mean as someone who's had student loans i think that it it depends on the knowledge of the person like i don't necessarily need someone to who's had that experience to coach me on that experience from my perspective and i think part of the reason that you may have gotten some flack is that or whoever has, is that people are quick to remind others how easy it is for them when they just refuse to get over the mental hurdles for themselves. And I'm not talking about any like major, major obstacles or anything, but like little things, people like I know whenever my story goes on, uh, I think it was on Huffington Post or whatever it was on. A lot of people were like, oh, it must be easy if you, you know, make this much amount of money every year. And that's just people projecting their own inability or their, their own like challenges onto the situation. Totally agree. I mean, I think there's always going to be somebody better than you and worse than you. As long as you remember that, then I think everything kind of works out, you know? Yeah, I've found that the people tend to ignore the fact that people are doing worse than them and only focus on the fact that people are doing better than them. I consciously is like, oh, yeah, that guy's not doing so great. That sucks. But then I'm like, this guy's doing way better than me. How can I? How is he doing that so well? Like, how can I get there? Oh, I wish I had his life. You know, like, I just like completely ignore the fact that there's other people struggling out there and just like focus on the people who are doing better than me. And I think everybody does that. Most people are struggling. I can tell you all those statistics about credit card debt and people living paycheck to paycheck and not having enough for retirement. All those things are true. I talk to people that have professional degrees. They're really smart. Most of them are a lot smarter than me because they were able to complete doctoral level type programs, right? And yet a lot of them have 20000 or 40000 in credit card debt. They have no emergency funds. Uh, some of my clients, they spend way too much on leasing brand new cars that they can't afford. And it's because everything in the world teaches us to do that. And there's nobody that's standing up to them and saying, hey, I care about you. This is a bad idea. Stop. Sometimes I have to do that. Now, sometimes it's the other side of the coin and they like are great savers. I'm like, gosh, live a little, you know, but I would, <laughs> I would say that typically that's what I find is just all kinds of problems where people are, are really in trouble spending. And in terms of like thinking uh, that people are better and worse, it's funny. Whenever I tell people that they're in this percentile of the debt distribution that I've seen, it typically makes them feel better. It's kind of funny. Like if you know that there's somebody else that's like out there that's worse than you because you feel like you're the worst out there. Like if you if you made a decision you wish you could take back, right? Like, oh man, I went to a really expensive school. I feel bad about it. I don't need somebody to tell me that I'm, you know, I made a bad decision because I know that. 
but then you tell them, well, actually, you're probably like only in the top quarter. Probably I see, you know, about 25% of the people have worse debt situations than you. That gives people hope. So I like to, I like to tell people about the situations that on the downside because all we ever hear in society is that person who has like $2 million that they got by the age of, you know, 23. And that's not really that helpful. Yeah. Do you do consults for Parent PLUS loans? The reason I ask is that, so I paid off $89,000 of debt between my husband and myself and then realized that my parents still had these Parent PLUS loans from my education and my sister's, my sibling's education that they they hadn't addressed yet. And, you know, my parents are very tight-lipped about money, so I didn't know, but I know the interest rate on them is like crazy. It's like 9% or something. Yeah. Do you ever discuss that with any of the clients? Oh, I, I totally do. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll just say that the the vast majority is because parent plus loans are typically from undergrad and typically I don't work that with that many people with only undergrad loans. So to the extent that they come up, they come up because the person also has a lot of loans from graduate school. But for parent plus loans, the typical thing you need to do is just refinance. There's a lot of places out there to refinance loans and check places I think I've got the best collection of cashback bonuses out there to take a look and, and get the lowest rates. So if you go to studentloanplanner.com, you'll see those on the homepage. And so I would tell somebody, if you've got Parent Plus loans, you know they're always at like 7 8 9%. Almost always, you just want to refinance those and pay them back as fast as possible because you can't consolidate those in the name of the borrower. You can't make them eligible for the best repayment programs really and get loan forgiveness because they're never high enough and an amount for the parent to do it in their name. So the short answer on Parent Plus is just to refinance, and that, typically speaking, is not complex of enough of a call to warrant charging a consult fee, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would encourage anyone listening, if even if you think your parents may have paid off their loans, directly ask them, and you might be able to help them out. They might be embarrassed, right? Yeah. They might not want to talk about it. Yeah, or they just don't. It's like debt is a, a thing to them. It's not... You're, it's not an emergency like it may be to some of us in the personal finance community. I'm actually I, wearing a SoFi shirt right now. Oh, snap, yeah? Yeah, I, I got that to think on. Huh. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be interesting with all these refinancing companies. I think some of them are going to survive and some of them are going to get crushed and we're going to find that out pretty soon. Like There's really intense competition right now and uh, really good refinancing bonuses and crazy good interest rates that I find sometimes for people. And my, my buddy joked to me the other day, he's like, how do these people make money? You know, so uh, I don't know. We'll see what happens in that space. I think that the education in this country is just like, in some ways, Not so. it's kind of like a scam. I'll just kind of call it for what I think it is. If you go to school and pay $300,000 for something, I guess maybe you can say that, okay, I'm doing that to learn something really specific, like becoming a doctor. But I don't know. I, I've heard you, Jay, before on different thoughts on this about like Harvard MBAs and things like that. And uh, I applied to Wharton and Harvard and got rejected for both for MBA programs. And I was bummed at the time. But like looking back on it, I'm actually really grateful because I think that so many people get MBAs and master's degrees and go back to school because that's the thing that's going to reinvent them. And only I think only you can reinvent yourself and only you can get into the thing that you wanted to do, right? Like if you have a $20,000 emergency fund, Quit your job. It'll last the year if you're really careful about it, and you'll find out some really cool things about yourself. Don't go to random local university online MBA program that's going to have you do a bunch of baloney courses and projects, and then you get a little certificate saying that you're special. You know, I mean, that's kind of how I view that stuff. And maybe that's kind of mean or kind of 
intense, but I don't know what y'all are. I mean, I'm I'm definitely turning into a little bit of a hippie. And to mention my parents again, they're worried because they are so proud of this education that I've had. And I, I had a... I guess a little bit more of like a prestigious undergraduate degree in the sense. But when I think about what I would recommend to my kids and to others, I wouldn't go that route. I would not at all. I think that the way that education is accessible online and it's becoming, it's free, first of all. And then second of all, like how outrageous it's gotten. And then third, how on the job learning is often how people are are getting up to speed on things. It's even like in the computer science industry what you learn in school, it will help you. But once you're in the job, like your first six months in the job is really going to take off for you. So it's really hard for me to like recommend others to get into that debt. And as you mentioned, for a lot of people, graduate school is just kind of like a delaying of the real world and choices and the opportunity cost is just way too big. Uh, But yeah, to circle back on my parents, it makes them worried because they're like, oh God, you're not going to give your kids the same education that you got. And it's like horrible to them, the thought of that. Ask me how much I use of my college education in day-to-day life. <laughs> you don't use uh, calculus every morning? Not pre no. or calculus. You don't uh, take actually, <laughs> No, gosh, no. Although, truthfully, I have a liberal arts degree, so I use a lot of it, especially with everything going on in the world right now. Like, I have a lot of opinions and history and things that I, I bring into that from my undergraduate. Yeah. Was it worth, you know, $200,000 or something? That's, that's debatable. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. my college education was worth every penny that I paid for it. <laughs> the joke being there that I ended up with got like bills of like $2,000 to go to college. So yeah, you, you didn't pay hardly anything for it. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think you got a college for me was a wonderful experience. It would have been, I think, a terrible experience if my bill was 20 times higher. And absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think that you got to go take risks, learn about yourself. I was totally clueless what I wanted to do. I graduated totally clueless, still I'm kind of somewhat totally clueless. And, <laughs> you know, spending that much money to, like, go find yourself, that's it's not going to happen, like, you know, unless these private schools have a money-back guarantee if you don't find yourself with their beautiful, you know, squirrel-covered campuses, then I don't think it makes any <laughs> sense to go. I mean, I don't know. Like, I think there's going to be a correction, right? I think there's going to be a huge correction in the price of higher education. I think they've been extremely greedy, uh, I think all these colleges have spent so much money building these mausoleums on campus, and and ev- eventually, I think that you'll you're going to have some sort of crash. And I don't know how it's going to happen, but you know we went from 300 billion in student loans to 1.5 trillion in 12 years. So if we have oh. a similar rate of growth, you and mortgage debt's like 8 trillion. So if you had give it another 20 years, by the time we have kids going to college. You know, student student debt could be easy, like you know, five to ten trillion. And if it was that much, like the economy could collapse because mm-hmm. the government's the government's actually here's like the secret: the government's really on the hook for most of this because there's all these giant tax bombs that are being set up that people are going to owe with loan forgiveness that they're not modeling. And so I don't know. So the the short answer there is like. Don't worry about making, you know, a ton of money. Just like be saving aggressively, tune on, you know, tune in and move to Europe. That's that's kind of like my uh <laughs> my my message, I guess. I think that's a great way to end uh we do need to ask you our final question though. Sure. So, what is your wildest dream? Wildest dream. You're absolutely out there. You wouldn't confess to anyone, but now you're sharing it with all of the listeners on this podcast. What is it? Hmm. 
Go crazy. Think of anything and everything. I would love to go to Mars on my 60th birthday for a trip and come back. That would be awesome. Why 60? Because I feel like I feel like 60 is I'll be old enough that I mean, this is this is like terrible to say, but like probably if I'm 60, like maybe my parents have passed, so like they wouldn't get really upset, like if something bad happened to me. You know, if something happens to me, everybody can say like, "Oh, he's lived a good life." Probably would have adult kids by that time and maybe hopefully experienced i don't know a couple grandchildren or something so it would be just that kind of like cap to a really interesting life i I don't know just kind of something nuts i always thought it'd be kind of cool to go to to mars but be super high risk right so you have to have a a really high risk loving Mm -hmm. attitude hey you have a long way to go until then yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, everything else until then, right? It's just uh, just gravy waiting on Elon Musk to make it cheap enough for me to go. Um, Icing on the cake. Yeah. On the cake of your 60th birthday cake. <laughs> but hopefully that's a little different than a traditional retirement answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, hey, Travis, thanks so much for being on today. Tell us where we can, or if anyone has questions, where can they follow up with you at? Yeah, I mean, they can always email me, Travis at studentloanplanner.com. And visiting my website, studentloanplanner.com, you'll see a little chat box on there that I'm usually on, so you could ask me a question if it's just about anything. It's cool. And uh, I also have this uh, little blog, millennialmoolah.com, where I journeyed, uh, I kind of talked about my my journey to where I am now and personal finance stuff. It's a little bit more broad than just student loans. So uh, I'd say studentloanplanner.com is probably the best place to find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by SarahEllenHutchison.com. Sarah Ellen works with lawyers who are looking to break through to a fulfilling career or solo practice. Her business is Essie Coaching LLC, and she helps lawyers through frugal practice hacks and mindfulness techniques. Go to SarahEllenHutchison.com to learn more. Before we go, we just wanted to let you know about our giveaway that we're doing right now. If you leave us a review in iTunes by searching for Fire Drill Podcast, Fire Space Drill Space Podcast, and leave us a review, an honest review, then we will enter you into a contest to win Pat Flynn's Will It Fly. Will It Fly is an awesome business book. I read it last summer, and it actually helped me launch my Etsy business. I highly recommend it. And we're going to give away a copy to one lucky listener for free. So if you want to multitask right now, search for Fire Drill Podcast, Leave us a review, take a screenshot, and email it to firedrillpodcast at gmail.com. We would love that. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Go to our website, firedrillpodcast.com, to continue the discussion and get the link to our private Facebook group. If you like us, leave us a review on iTunes. If you're like me, you have no idea how to do that. So, in the podcast app or in iTunes, search for Fire Drill Podcast, find it, click the reviews tab, and write something to make my mother proud of me. We read every single review and want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts for making this podcast possible. Sorry, that's my dog. I'll edit him out. Well, he agrees, you know. <laughs> He's really fired up on what you're saying right now. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I'm speaking to his soul.